You're listening to audio from Pillar Church of Jacksonville, where our goal is to know Jesus and to make him known. If you have questions or want to know more about us, and can text Pillar to 94000 or visit our website at pillarjacks.com. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4 today. Uh, we will be in verses 1 through 42 as we continue our series uh, in John's Gospel. Uh, Mike mentioned it earlier, but feel free to text and questions you might have to the number on the screen behind me. Um, if you text the word pillar to 94,000, I'll give you some options. One of those is to ask questions about the sermon. Um, and Scott, thank you, uh, and McKenna for that. I, I love the Advent season. Uh, I love you know the, the series of preparing your heart uh, for Christmas. It's very easy to get sucked into a lot of commercialism uh, or just other messages and busyness. Uh, it's super helpful to come here week after week and, you know, light the candles, focus on who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Uh, I just, I, I love this time of year. So, uh, all right, we will be in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. I'll read those first, uh, and then we'll pray. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then come the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Would you please join with me in prayer? Great Savior of the world. We thank you that you cared enough for us to meet us in this world. We thank you that you are gentle and lowly of heart, willing even to have a conversation with sinners who are sitting beside a well. We thank you for the way that you spoke through your prophets and talking about the Christ and the Savior that was to come. And Lord, we ask for more of your help today as we seek to know you better and to be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm super used to, like, talking with my hands, so if the, the microphone moves around here a little bit, we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, but I, I wanted to share something with you that happened to me this last week. I was, I was on YouTube. Uh, somehow I got down one of those, like, YouTube rabbit holes, and uh, I ended up watching a couple of clips from the show Undercover Boss, if anybody has, has ever seen that. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the show, the, uh, the, the premise of the show is actually pretty simple. Uh, they take leaders of big corporations, and then they give them like a wig and some facial hair. Maybe they put on some makeup, and they disguise them. And they, they say that they're like, hey, these are brand new employees that need training. So like nobody recognizes them. And then they, the show sends these high-level executives uh, that, to work at the lowest levels of their company. And the purpose is to get an undercover look at how the organization actually operates. Sometimes the show can be a little cringeworthy. Uh, there was one clip I was watching where an undercover manager is being taught by this, uh, by this employee 
and the employee is tel telling her how like the company's customers are worthless and annoying and that the customers are awful because customers actually make you do your job instead of having to just like be on your phone all day. And you can see the manager is doing like everything in her power to not just like go off on this kid <laughs> like, while he talks to her. And so it's both funny and kind of cringeworthy at the same time. But then there are other times in the show where like really amazing things happen, really heartfelt things. Uh, there was one clip where the founder of the company, you know, he's undercover and he's being mentored uh, by this young woman, probably in her late 20s or early 30s. And this lady is just great, like super good attitude, like strong work, work ethic. She genuinely cares about the people coming into the store. Um, and she is doing everything she can to pass on that same attitude to the new employee. And the new employee happens to be the owner of the company. But at one point, they start kind of talking more about their lives and where they've come from. And the owner finds out that the woman is a single mother of three children and that she's been struggling financially over the last year or two uh, to the point that she and her children have actually been living out of a homeless shelter for the last year or two while she's been trying to get a job and, and put her life back together. And she's telling this just like to the CEO who she thinks is just like, hey, the new guy at work. And she even like starts giving him a pep talk at one point and she's like, hey, don't give up, right? Like I know this is a difficult job to learn and it can be challenging, but if I'm not giving up with three kids in a homeless shelter, like you can't give up when things get hard either. And like it's one of those moments where it's like, I'm, I'm not crying, you're crying. Um, and the, the end of the episode, there's like this big reveal where the CEO reveals who he is. And then uh, it's great because he like, he promotes her to manager like on the spot and then gives her a check for like $200,000. and like, go buy a house and get out of the homeless shelter. And it's just like, everybody's breaking down crying. It's great. It's a very feel good moment. And what I love about that entire premise of the show though, is that it, it reveals a simple principle for good or for bad. You just never know who you were talking to. Right? It could be like, hey, Billy from back on the block, or you could be talking to the most powerful person in your company, and you may not know it. And I think this is a good way to frame what we are covering today in John's Gospel, because today we have a conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman, and it quickly becomes clear that she has no idea who she is talking to. But this is a conversation that is going to change her life forever. And my prayer today is that it would change our lives as well. So before we get into the points for today's message, uh, I want to set the stage with a little bit of information for you. Um, at the beginning of this passage, we'll see, we see that Jesus' ministry has been exploding in a good way. It's just like um, ex exponential growth. At the beginning of the passage, uh, if you look at verses 1 through 2, it tells us that Jesus' ministry has already exceeded that of John the Baptist. And we kind of saw that a couple of weeks ago where John the Baptist is causing such a splash that the religious leaders are sending dudes like 25 miles to go figure out what's going on. And now to the point that Jesus' ministry is expanding even beyond that. And so when Jesus knows that the religious leaders are kind of getting wind of this, he decides it's good uh, for him to kind of just temporarily move on, go somewhere else, maybe lie low for a while. And so verses 3 through 5 tell us that he leaves Judea 
and goes to Galilee. Uh, but the way to get to Galilee uh, requires a little bit uh, of movement. So uh, you actually have to cut through Samaria, and the people who live there um, are known as Samaritans. So if you can uh, actually, can you guys throw up that slide for, for one minute? I have something that might help you a little bit here. Um, yeah, so if you look at the very bottom of that map, that kind of that green area, that's Judea. And then north above that, and that purple area is Samaria. North above that, in green again, is Galilee. So really, there's not a good way to get from Judea to Galilee unless you cut through Samaria. Kind of required. Um, but this caused problems because most Jews do not like Samaritans. And just actually keep that up for one second, guys. Um, for all intents and purposes, uh, Jews considered Samaritans worthless and unclean. In fact, extremely conservative Jews uh, would take a step further and not travel through Samaria at all. And you'll notice kind of on the right side of the, the eastern edge of all three of those countries is the River Jordan kind of cutting straight down. And so what some people would do is they would cross the Jordan River to the east, proceed past Samaria, and then cross the Jordan River west just so they didn't have to go through Samaria. Right? So they could still get to their destination while avoiding it altogether. You have to really not like somebody to cross a river twice just to potentially avoid interacting with them. I appreciate that, guys. You can take it down. So what then is the source of this hostility? Well, it's kind of cultural and it's kind of religious. The Samaritans are sort of a mixed race of Jews that have intermarried with other local people groups. Um, in intermarrying, the Jewish religion has gotten mixed with local idols and other forms of idolatry. And at this point, many Samaritans believe that they are the true followers of God, even though they have this, in the eyes of the Jews, a, a twisted and distorted religion. They think they're the ones in the right, and they think that they are the rightful descendants of Abraham, not the Jews. And they also believe that the temple, the Jerusalem temple, was illegitimate. So you kind of have this reference in our text to this place called Mount Gerizim. And this is where the Samaritans believe that the rightful altar of God was to be placed. So it's in Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. It's Mount Gerizim, not the temple. That's where true worship of God has to occur. And lastly, the Samaritans rejected the majority of the Jewish scriptures. So they kept the first five books, uh, sometimes called the Torah or the Pentateuch. They kept those. They believed those were legitimate. Uh, but the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, they discarded. So in a society where culture and identity are based around obedience to the scriptures, you can see how it would be problematic if there were people who rejected 34 out of the 39 books uh, within your scriptures. So religious impurity, ethnic impurity, uh, there was a lot to disapprove of concerning the Samaritans. And so that's kind of the background for today. So we'll get into the, to the main points now. Uh, I'll have four for this morning. But for you note takers, point number one for this text is that Jesus chooses obedience over social expectations. Jesus chooses obedience over social expectations. So we see Jesus approaching the Samaritan town, and unlike the ultra-conservative Jews, like, he doesn't skirt around it, he doesn't cross the Jordan, no, he goes right into it. 
And as he gets there, the text tells us in verse 6 that he's weary from his journey. His physical body is exhausted. It's also pretty much the hottest part of the day. We're told it's the sixth hour, which would make it about noon. And so here we see uh, the, need, uh, the needs of Jesus. Like, hey, he's, we say fully God, yes, and fully man. Like, he had, uh, he, had, he had to eat, he had to drink. There were things that his body needed. And Jesus is sitting at the well of Jacob as this woman comes up to him. And from all indications in the text, Jesus and the woman are alone as their conversation begins. There are none of Jesus' disciples around, and there appears to be no one else from the town present at the well. This may be on purpose from the woman's perspective because she may have been going to get water at a time that would guarantee not having to see other people from her town. There are some Christian men who will not speak to women that are not their wife out of fear for gossip and what some people might infer. Yet Jesus knows that he needs to speak with her. There is a life that needs to be changed by the gospel and Jesus was not going to let social norms stand in his way. So in this interaction, Jesus is the first one to begin speaking. He asks her for a drink. And the woman is taken aback, and there are a few reasons for this that are indicated in verse 9. Uh, first, it says, hey, Jews don't talk to Samaritans. But then later in verse 9, it indicates another implied reason, which she says, why are you, a Jewish man, speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? Not only should you not be talking to me because I'm a Samaritan, random men should not be talking to random women, especially in this culture. So here we have this collision of multiple social issues, culture and gender norms. Um, Jew doesn't speak to Samaritan. Jewish man should not speak to a Samaritan woman. And she even says that to Jesus, yet Jesus knew that the right thing was still to talk to her, to talk to her about the life and repentance found in God. Jesus would not let social norms alter what he knew to be true. And I want to read you a quote that I found particularly helpful in discussing this aspect of the passage. Uh, the authors of the book say, So often, people see the right thing they should do. They recognize it could be misinterpreted, and they allow fear to prevail over courage. One aspect of Jesus' greatness of character is that fear of man never prevailed over what virtue prompted him to do. In other words, Jesus did the right thing even if it could be misinterpreted. He chose obedience over social pressure because he came as the light of the world, and that means being a light to the entire world. Male and female, rich and poor, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, the entire world. The two great commandments are all about love. It's loving God and loving others. And one of the ways we love others is by doing the right thing, even if social customs might make it taboo. One of the things that's somewhat common on military bases is to have a, a lot of young service members uh, walking around the base. Uh, many of them don't have cars, and so they walk from their barracks to the dining facility, they walk from their barracks uh, to where they work. And that's not an issue when the weather is nice, uh, but it's kind of a big deal when the weather is bad. Like if you're brand new to the base, you don't have friends, you don't have no, know someone who has a car. You know, you might be walking half a mile, a mile to any of those locations. And I once heard a senior leader in, in my organization mention that if it, was, if it was cold outside, if it was windy, if rain was coming down, 
that he would not stop his car and offer to give one of those young service members a ride to the dining facility or to work. Um, he wouldn't do that if the person was a female. And his reason was simple. He's like, hey, people might infer that something inappropriate was going on because perception is of critical importance. Perception is reality. And I can, I can understand that reasoning, and I can actually support uh, some of the, the justification there. But I think it needs to be balanced with something else because you know what else is inappropriate? is passing by someone in need when you have the ability to help them. And I go back to the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And if it's like 34 degrees outside and it's like downpouring raining and I have to walk a mile to get food, would I want someone to like stop their truck and be like, hey man, get in, I'll, I'll drive you the rest of the way. Absolutely. So why would I then not do it for others? And I think there's a lot of wisdom here. There are a lot of, like, each circumstance is different. There may be reasons, you know, to pass somebody. Like, if I'm passing somebody and they've got a crazy look in their eye and a hatchet in their hand, like, okay, yeah, I'm probably going to pass that dude up. I'm like, hey, sorry, man, you walk today. <laughs> um, but I think there are other circumstances, too, that wisdom would dictate, hey, maybe we, it's not an obligation. We have to do this every single time. But what I want you to do is I want you to analyze the heart behind that statement. I would not do this because I care more about my reputation than I care about helping other people. Christians should be people who are willing to do what is right, regardless of current social customs. More than that, when we do what is against culture, we must be ready to accept any criticism or disagreements that our actions might bring about. Because that is what Christ did, and what we should strive to model as well in our own lives. Point number two for today is that Jesus brings living water to thirsty souls. Jesus brings living water to thirsty souls. Jesus says to her, look, I have asked you to help me get a drink of water, but if you knew who I was, you would want this conversation to be reversed. You would be asking me for something instead. Instead of the water in the well, Jesus pivots the conversation to talk about something called living water. And what, what is living water? And I think there are kind of there are kind of two levels of meaning that you could take from this passage. Uh, one is a very surface level understanding. Um, generally speaking, living water, living things are things that move, right? It's it's not stagnant. So a river would be living water. It moves. It's clean water. It can be utilized for a purpose. It's moving and alive. I think that's the first meaning, like the on the face meaning. And you can tell that this first meaning is what she was thinking of because. She even asks Jesus, well, how do you get this water? Like, you don't, she's looking around, like, you don't have a bucket to draw the water out. Uh, where are you getting the living water? Is there a river, like, underneath the, the ground somewhere that I don't know about? But the second meaning of the phrase, living water, is more spiritual. Living water is water that gives life. I've got this plant on my desk at work, and when I went away for vacation on a couple weeks, like, I forgot to tell somebody to water it, and so I came back, and it's all, like, shriveled and, and decaying. But it wasn't too far gone. I was able to, like, throw in some water. And within a couple days, like, it came back. It was green. It began growing again. Water gives life. There's a life-giving quality to it. And you take that even further, and the, the life Jesus is talking about here is beyond anything like that. It's beyond any temporary fix, any temporary longing. It is water that satisfies for for eternity. It is eternal life found in the name of Jesus. 
That is the living water that he's talking about. And we see that in verse 14. He di- when he discusses this water, he says, it quenches a deeper thirst. Not just a temporary longing, but the need for eternal life. The need to be made alive from an eternal death. Because different from the plant that I have on my desk, where it's like, oh, this, it's not fully dead, it can come back. We are fully dead, right? The conditions of our heart is one of death. Uh, we read it earlier in Jeremiah. It says, hey, the, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it, right? The wages of sin is death, Romans tells us. Like, we are dead in sin and in our transgressions. That is how we are by nature. The reason we are corrupt, the reason we have fights, the reason we choose sin over God is because by our nature we are dead inside. And the image here of the life Christ brings is one of water that eternally brings life, eternally satisfies, never thirsting again. That's quite the claim. That when you come to Christ, when you accept his way of life, that when you follow after him, that this will be eternally satisfying. I don't think that means that there won't be days of doubting. But I think what it means is that the closer we get to Jesus, the more we drink of eternal water, the more we will be eternally satisfied. And it is, a, um, it is eternally like efficacious. Like, hey, it, it's never going to lose its power. Right? The living water of Christ, or sometimes we might even say, hey, the blood of Jesus. You know, for now and forever, it will never lose its power. Sins forgiven, relationships made new, right? The purpose realized for which the human heart was made for, like this is what he's offering in the living water, what he offers to us. And yet the woman at the well still misunderstands him and thinks that he's still just talking about water down in the well. And it's easy to criticize her, but I wonder if we're actually any better with this. Because we come to Jesus thinking that the physical details of our lives will be made easier if we follow him. When in reality, Jesus has something far greater in mind. The woman's asking for water so that she doesn't have to keep going to and from the well. She's like, I, I don't want to thirst ever again. That's, <laughs> that sounds great. You're telling me I don't have to like drag this jar from the town and like get water and take it back? Like, sign me up. That's what she's looking for. She wants, she wants her life to be made easier. And so Jesus realizes that she may only be valuing him because of what she can get out of the deal. So he turns the script and wants to address the deeper need that her soul has, right? Because there's a deeper healing that has to happen first. So then he tells her, hey, go get your husband and come back. And she responds with a technically true statement. She says, I'm not married. I don't have a husband. And, but that's not the whole story. That's not the whole truth. Yes, she's not married, but the text says she's had five husbands, and the guy she's sleeping with now, she isn't married to, and Jesus knows all of this. And so then he says that to her, and she began to realize on a very small scale who it is that she's talking to. Very directly, very bluntly in verse 19, she says, oh, I see you're a prophet. And she then does what we all do when we are cornered, or uncomfortable we change the topic we try to get out then she then starts talking about temple worship and distinctions between Jews and Samaritans a highly politicized highly emotional topic 
that she thinks will get Jesus talking about something other than her sin. And the other really cool thing is that Jesus is okay with that. He's okay if the topic changes. He's like, look, you can change the topic all day long. It's not going to change who you're talking to. And no matter where you try to take this conversation, it's going to come back to the exact same place. And that place is how you need to be saved and how I am that Savior. That's his message to her. And this brings us to point number three. Jesus came to make true worshipers. Jesus came to make true worshipers. She, as a, Samarit- as a Samaritan, believes that the true place of worship is on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. But the Jews believe it is at the temple in Jerusalem. And they each have different religious texts that would indicate how worship should be done. But Jesus says that there, there's something more important than the location of worship. If you look at verses 22 through 24, it shows us that the location of worship is important, but that Jesus brings with him a new period in the history of salvation. If you look in verse 25, she, like the woman even recognizes, she's like, hey, I understand that there's going to be a time when the Messiah comes, and he's going to clear all this up, right? The Messiah will come and make all things right. He'll deal with this bickering between the Jews and the Samaritans. He'll say who's right and who's wrong. We'll get this all sorted out when the, when the Christ finally shows up. And then he says to her, yes, the Messiah will do all that, and I am that Messiah. In the Old Testament, God had revealed himself through the Jews, as Jesus mentions in verse 22. And that was most clearly seen in the ministry of the temple. But the Messiah would bring a change to how God was worshipped by his people. This change would make worshippers of God worshippers in spirit and truth. Not limited by geography, not limited by ethnicity, all of those born of God's spirit, those who accept his teachings and walk in his ways, these people would be the worshipers of God. And this new stage of kingdom worship would be universal. It wouldn't be limited to just the Jews. If you look at what Jesus says in verses 31 through 38, he starts talking about the nature of the harvest. And what he means is that the kingdom of God is going to expand throughout the entire world. right? And these disciples of Jesus will be entering into a work that they did not prepare for. Right? There are going to be Jews that will come to Jesus. There will be Samaritans coming to Jesus. And then later on, we're going to see Gentiles coming to Jesus. Right? The disciples didn't work for any of that. But Jesus says the harvest is here in verse 35. And he says, like, hey, normally there's a delay between planting and harvesting. But he says, not in this case. Because of the fruit of Christ's ministry are going to be immediate. Because right? things are happening now. And I would say we're still here. Like, we are working in the fields of what God has prepared, right? People in our family, people in our workplaces, like, the conversations we have, it's amazing. We can see things happen now. And it's kind of like a both and. Like, sometimes things happen immediately, and the work of God is instantaneous. And there are other times where the work we are doing is very much like what he's saying here. Hey, the, those who sow and those who reap are going to be different, but they're going to rejoice together because it's the same work that God is doing throughout the world. The one who sows and the one who reaps are sharing in joy together. You know why? Because the one who sows and the one who reaps are all on the same team. Like, 
all working together in real time for a single purpose. And the result is that God receives the glory. Right? If we're all working together as people move around and conversations are had, it's like the one who gets the glory is God, not us. Because there shouldn't be any jealousy or competition within the kingdom of God. One of the things I love about this church is that I have heard members of our church leadership, so I've heard pastors and deacons speak to visitors. It's like, hey, this is your first time? Is your second time? And as they learn more about them, they're like, hey, you know what? This may not be the best church for you, right? You live like way out and wherever. Hey, you know that there's actually another really, really solid, really um, gospel-centered, like Bible-believing church that's only like five minutes down the road from where you, where you live? We think you should probably check that church out. So why, why do we do that? Because we want to be a church that does not exist for ourselves, right? Our job is not to create numerical growth and build Pillar Church of Jacksonville. I mean, if God blesses us with that, great. But if he doesn't, that's okay too. At the end of the day, we're just called to be faithful. We are called to minister to people and help them. And if there's something that could help someone more than what we can do, we tell them, like, hey, go to that place. Because the kingdom of God is universal. And one day, we're going to enter into glory with people from every true Christian denomination and see that we are all working for one purpose, the glory of God. Like, we, don't, we don't view other denominations or other churches as our enemy. They aren't competition. They are fellow workers in the sowing and harvesting of God's garden. And one day we will see that the one who sows and the one who reaps will all share in the same joy together. So that's point number three. The last point for today is that Jesus came to create reconciliation where there is hostility. Jesus came to create reconciliation where there is hostility. If you look at verse 39, I'll read there to the end again. It says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We mentioned earlier that some Jews wouldn't even travel into Samaria. And yet, what do we see Jesus doing here? Not, not only does he travel through Samaria, verse 40 tells us that he stayed there for multiple days. Why would Jesus stay in a place that many considered unclean? Why would Jesus damage his own reputation by going and staying with these people? Because where our culture finds hostility, Jesus came to bring peace and reconciliation. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. Verse 42 tells us that he's the Savior of the world. He's not just the Savior of white people or black people, not just the Savior of men or of women. Any place where our culture has created uh, hostility or violence, Christ has come to bring reconciliation through his blood. He is the only one that can take two people groups marked by constant tension and outright hatred and bring true fellowship and brotherly affection. Like, that doesn't, 
happen with like education and training. It doesn't come through seminars. Like it comes through a changed heart when we see that our sinful nature has been forgiven and we now seek to extend that love that Christ has shown us to the world around us. The message to her, to the woman at the well is clear. Like, lady, it doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan. It doesn't matter if you're a woman. In the eyes of God, we all have equal standing. We are all created in his image. We are all sinners, but we are all extended the same gift of grace to become children of God. And when we accept the teaching of Jesus, the New Testament tells us in Galatians 3, where Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So many of the social problems that the church has seen is because we have lost sight of this truth. We have exalted our culture or our national identity over our identity in Christ. And what would happen if the church as a whole said, hey, if you are in Christ, you are a brother or sister of mine. If you are in Christ, regardless of any other factor, we will treat you as family and love you as we would want to be loved. Regardless of any factor that divides us, politics, race, gender, what if we said, hey, you know, you may be different than me, but you are my brother or sister in Christ, and I'm going to love you as Christ has called me to love you. And even for those who aren't Christians, what if, what if we embrace the call to love them as well? Then maybe the world would see the truth mentioned by Paul in Ephesians 2, where he says, hey, when, when Christ rules in your heart, in Ephesians 2, you'll see the dividing wall of hostility between people taken down. Here in a minute, we're going to sing another song. Uh, but as our musicians are walking up, I would remind you that the call to the life of a Christian is one that's dynamic, right? The message of Christ pushes against societal expectations. It builds bridges where our culture would seek to build fences. And it is the only thing that is eternally satisfying. It is the only thing that can save us from sins. It is the only thing that can redeem us from the wrath of God. For it is only in Christ that we can live. I don't think this Samaritan woman was prepared for the depth of the conversation that she was going to have that morning. But you can tell that her life was drastically impacted by what she heard. And when we are humble enough to listen to God's word, we too can be changed this drastically as well. But the advantage is that we know who we're talking to. The infinite God of the universe who knows better than any of us. Right? We don't have to be uncertain on who Jesus said he was. He told us why he came. He gave us his word to reveal himself. And he told us that he's with us here now. And then he told us that he's coming back again. So would you please pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you that it is only in the triune God that we can find life. We thank you for the perfect plan of the Father. We thank you for the humility and sacrifice of the Son. And we thank you for the way the Holy Spirit is working in conversations and details of our lives that bring us to the point where we can be challenged to respond in faith. Lord, may we respond in faith now by accepting the eternally satisfying water of your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.